Last week, uh, Harrison preached. I was not here. Um, I was in Brevard with uh, Grace Brevard. It's an EPC church plant coming out of Grace and Mills River. Uh, And we uh, supported them. We've sent them uh, our entire church planting budget, which is for us a lot and for them very little. But uh, we we, uh, love them and we're keep up with them. I see Brian, their pastor, um, a lot, and uh, so he needed a break and asked me to come preach, so I was over there preaching. I took a picture. Um, no. Come on. Uh, this is, this is uh, only part, this was a hastily taken selfie at the end of the service. Um, this is, there's actually two more sections of seats over here. And I apparently, like, in this area is usually a big crowd of staff from Young Life Camps that were gone that day. But this is the uh, Little Brevard Playhouse uh, Theater. And they had fit, on average, 200 to 250 people. Uh, they've only been going for about four months. And they've filled this place out. They have actually had to change the fire code to allow them to meet in this place because they had so many people already. Um, and so they are, they, they actually this legion, this is a legion hall technically. That's who actually owns the building. And uh, there's like a, two rooms that run parallel to this where their kids go and um, definitely looks kind of like a bar and definitely kind of smells like one too. Um, they're actually in the process of uh, moving to a pretty significant piece of property in Brevard. This is in downtown Brevard. I had to find my way there because it was the White Squirrel Festival, which is a thing. FYI, there's a festival for these white rodents. And um, anyway, it's a, it was great to be there with them. They, they're, uh, I'm really excited about this, this church family that we have now, not too, not too far from here. That's Brian over here, by the way, the, the, the weirdo that looks like he's like, um, that's Brian. Uh, hopefully someday he will turn the favor and he'll preach here for us. Um, but that's where it was. You can please take that off now. Thank you. Um, also, this, this week I, I spent um, pretty uh, all told like a day and a half at the Cove at a conference with a, a guy named Ed Stetzer. Um, just talking about the nature of the, the missional world that we live in and um, the decline of Christianity, which has been sort of exaggerated, statistically speaking, um, but also just kind of the realities that we live in. What does it mean to, to be missional in this world? Is it, it was a great time. Um, and uh, one thing that he talked about was how somebody that he worked for 10 years ago would gather his staff together and... Uh, and ask them every single week who they had shared the gospel with that week. Every week. And uh, I was like, oh boy, let's not do that exercise right now. Um, and uh, he put up a, a graphic, and he's, they did this study of, of people, how many people have you told the gospel to in the last six months? And uh, I think it was something like 51% of the people who responded said zero. Uh, maybe 30 said one. And then like little tiny bars were two, three, four, five, six. Some people said like eight plus and credit to them. I don't, that's impressive. Um, 
And so he, he works for the Billy Graham, with the Billy Graham family, and, and at Billy Graham's funeral, somebody asked him, who's the next Billy Graham? And his response was uh, this woman who had tried to share the gospel with him in an Uber, um, who was just an Uber driver who took the opportunity to share the gospel with people. And I was just so struck by that. Because I think, uh, I think rightly our generation focuses a lot on service and sort of earning the right to be heard and that sort of thing. But oftentimes what that translates into is never telling anybody the gospel. It just, like maybe one day they'll sit down and stare them in the eye and say, please tell me about Jesus, which like never happens. That's, if you're waiting for that, it's not going to happen. Uh, at some point you gotta just like sort of spill the beans. And I, I've experienced that. I, I know how terrifying that can be in some ways. But he was just telling how this woman was so kind and winsome and loving and just talking to this person who was in her car. Um, and I was in this building with Billy Graham's name everywhere. And just the idea that the next Billy Graham is people like you and I just faithfully, kindly, consistently sharing the gospel explicitly um, it was encouraging and challenging. Uh, it changed the way that I went to get coffee the next day. And nothing happened. Like, I, I knew everybody in the coffee house, and they all go to churches and stuff. I was like, well, I tried. So um, try to do better next time. Um, one thing that I wanted to, to say from here before, before I, we finally get to, to this text um, as of the end of August, August 31st, um, Katie Duke will be stepping out of her role as leading our children's ministry. Um, their life is changing, and this is changing, and those two things are not meshing, and she's, she's just ready to be done. And she has done a lot more than probably any of you know and have seen. Um, not only finding more gospel-centered curriculum for our kids, but then editing and rewriting it all the time for years. And now we're set up for several more years so that somebody else doesn't have to do that. That's just one thing that, that Katie's done, and we're super appreciative. We'll tell you more. I'll talk more about them in a couple months, but I tell you that to let you know, one, that that's happening, two, the session now has to figure out who's going to lead this area of ministry for us. And we have no idea if that's somebody that's sitting in this room or normally sitting in this room, uh, or if it's somebody we haven't met yet or, or what that is. So I would ask you to pray whoever that next person's going to be. If something, someone comes to mind or some idea comes to mind, please come talk to us. You know, I'd remind you that our session meetings, our elder meetings, are open meetings. You, you're allowed to come and just watch for the pure entertainment of it. If you have literally nothing better to do, you can come do that. And you're always open to come and ask and talk with us and, and uh, whatever, complain or ask questions or ask for prayer. We love praying with people. So our next session meeting is uh, not, this, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow. So just for example. So we'd ask you to pray for us in that and, and also obviously pray for the Dukes uh, as they, they come to that finish line. All right, um, we're in 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel, and we're in chapters 11 and 12. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, I'm going to pray 
uh, for everything that I just said, and then we'll read the text and move on uh, our way. God, we thank you for all the ways that you have taken care of our church, and we thank you, God, for the gift, uh, the, the many gifts that you've given your people, and we thank you so much for the gifts that have been uh, brought here for our benefit, for the benefit of many, especially uh, through Katie's hands, giving to, to our kids. Um, God, we, we trust you and your timing and your moving and, and your providential care for us. We pray that you would continue to care for the Dukes as they move to the end of their time in this role. God, we pray for our church as well, that you would help us to be, to be wise in, in how we move forward and help us, God, to discern what it is we should do. And Father, we pray that right now our hearts in this room would be soft, that we would hear your voice, and we would allow you to speak to us and to correct us by your word, not so that we might be uh, buried under a mound of shame, but that instead we'd have our eyes lifted to the goodness of Jesus. We trust that you'll do this, God, to the praise of your name, amen. We're in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and these are two whole chapters that go together. I'm not going to read all of these two chapters. I'm just going to sort of summarize some things for us. Um, Harrison talked about the Davidic covenant last week and how God makes a covenant with, with David and his family that David will forever have a, a ruler sitting on the throne. Uh, and that through David's family, God is going to, to advance the story, the big story of redemption in the world. Um, and after that, after chapter 7, there's, we talked about one chapter already. It's the story of Mephibosheth, and um, we've covered that already. And there's also just some accounts of David's victories between 7 and where we are now in 11. So things, this is pretty much the height of things going well for David before this. Chapters 11 and 12 are the most infamous stories of David's reign and the story of David's family. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, the, the story is in the context of David's people, his men being out to war, and David is back in Jerusalem remaining behind, which isn't necessarily wrong. He, he did the same thing in chapter 10. He sent out his men. He's getting on in age at this point. He's not young David anymore. Uh, so it's not necessarily wrong that he remains in Jerusalem, but he sort of seems disengaged, not just physically behind where everything is. And it is in that context that one day he is on the top of his pals looking out kind of over everything that he's in charge of, and he sees a woman that is not his wife and decides to treat her like she is. Brings her into his house, and she gets pregnant. And the problem is, she is somebody's wife. She has a husband. His name is Uriah. Uriah is actually listed as one of David's uh, 30 big big guys. He's not, he's not like in the upper, upper echelon of guys, main, David's main dudes, but he's like in that next tier. Uriah is this Gentile Hittite guy who's converted and become an Israelite. And 
So David says, we have a problem. How do I explain? How do we explain what's going on? So David, in chapter 11, brings Uriah back home from the battlefront and tells him to go home. So then there's no questions about why his wife is pregnant. And Uriah says, no, not doing that. Um, I'm loyal. I'm faithful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep on the steps of the palace. Uh, I don't get to go home if my boys don't get to go home. And so David resorts to plan B with Uriah, and plan B is to have him killed. He sends him back to the battlefront and tells his commander, Joab, look, put Uriah in the thick of things, send them in a charge, and then have everyone withdraw. And so basically Uriah will be killed by, the, by these enemies. Joab says, this is kind of a crazy plan. And he kind of alters the instructions a little bit so that it's not so obviously aimed at killing Uriah. And so Uriah dies, several other men die in the attempt to cover all of this up. Uh, and so the chapter 11 ends with David being told, um, you know, we've lost this other mighty man and we've lost Uriah as well. And David's response is very callous. He's just like, you know, stuff happens. You gotta, you gotta help the king. This is, this is how things work. So in chapter 12, where we'll start reading, is then what happens in response. Because the, the words of chapter 11, the last words are, the Lord is displeased with what David has done. So we'll pick it up in here in chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, and, and, and before, if you haven't been tracking along, Nathan is a prophet of God. He's, he's entered the story before already. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children, he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there, was a, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wife in the, in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, be 
because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So then this next little segment of the story is the process of David waiting to see if in fact his child will die. He fasts and he prays and he pleads for for the life of his child. But in fact, as Nathan the prophet has said, judgment comes and his child dies. So we'll jump over to verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. When he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the Lord may live, but th- that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. The chapter then ends with David doing what he should have done. He, he goes into battle with his men, they experience victory, and they return to the city with all the spoils and acclaim of that victory. It's nicely bookended, uh, letting us know that these two chapters go together. David, uh, this story marks a turn in David's story. Up until this point, David has faithfully waited for God to bring him all that God wanted to give him. And from this point onward, everything in David's life will fall apart. This is the, this is the downward trajectory of David's life. You know, in, in the moment, there is mercy to some degree. God won't completely rip the kingdom from him as he did from Saul. Even though David has in this story acted like Saul. There are these strange affinities between David and Saul at this point in this story. That he is is careless and profligate with the life of others in pursuit of his own aims. But instead of him ending up as Saul... There is mercy for a moment, but his household will be marked by violence and betrayal until the end of 2 Samuel uh, and the end of his life. David, we've been told, is a man after God's heart. That's, That's how God talks about him before he calls Samuel to anoint David. And here we have... The, the closest thing to this point that we have is like a real and true hero in the Old Testament. Up until this point, he's just basically, it seems, been unimpeachably good. Faithful, patient, virtuous. And yet, here again, the Old Testament will not let us have one single untainted hero will not let you have it. Now, 
David's actually been edging towards this territory for quite a while in the story. Because first and second Samuel will just report how he has accumulated wives. And this is always trouble in the Old Testament. And today also, I would argue. He's, he is specifically prohibited from this kind of behavior as a king in the law. And he has started this practice of accumulating wives. And there's not a whole lot said of it, just these, the, the text is sort of signaling you throughout, like, hey, don't, just remember this. And it is in this, this seeming moment of comfort and ease and security that he is just fine in his palace in Jerusalem that David falls prey to what has actually been crouching at his door the entire time. The first thing that, that David's story with Bathsheba is going to, to tell us is it does not matter how good and virtuous and solid you feel. Your moral character is not unassailable. The language of the New Testament is that sin is prowling around like a lion. And lions... When they are ravenous, they are opportunistic. And if you display one moment of weakness, you're done. The, the view of, of humans in Scripture is yes, they bear the image of God, full of potential to do great and glorious things with and for God, to extend the good garden of God to the edges of the earth and beyond. But in every single person lies this inherent weakness. And if you think, Paul says, if you think that you will not fall, be, that, you, that you can keep standing, be careful lest you fall. Sin crouches at your door waiting for you to feel like just for a moment, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm all right. You're not. You're not. And you never will be. You will never be okay. You know, some of the, the people who are most clearly aware of this are the people that we often think we should not take instruction from. Addicts know this. If you are an alcoholic, you know not one drink is safe. It doesn't matter how long you've been sober. Alcoholics know there is no safe drink. Addicts are aware of their own story. They are aware of their own propensities. And they know the terms of the game. We who are not necessarily substance, addicted to substances, we don't often have that kind of self-acknowledgement. But here the text is telling you, David, a man after God's own heart, David, Israel's greatest king, David, who writes most of the Psalms, David, he is not okay, and neither are you. This is one of those uncomfortable moments of Scripture 
where things seem to be pointed squarely at your own chest. And it helps you realize how quickly you can be drawn into the insanity of sin. Because David acts like a crazy person from this point on. In this story, he acts like a crazy person. His plan is insane. He invites Uriah back, specifically just Uriah, in, theoretically to hide his sin, but then goes through all these twists and turns and jumps through all these hoops to try to get Uriah specifically to go home. How is that not suspicious? And then he sends Uriah back to Joab with the instructions for his own death in his own pocket. That is crazy. Why would you do that? Send another messenger with the instructions. And then his instructions are so specific and so transparently designed to kill Uriah that nobody who's paying any attention would not say, you know what, I wonder if there's something going on with Uriah. But he's trapped in the insanity of his sin. And if David can be entangled in such a net, so can you. So can you. And the other thing that this story will very clearly show us is that sin is not harmless. And as much as you think you can hide and manage sin, the ends of sin are always death. And it may not even kill you. It may kill innocent bystanders. This is the horrible, voracious nature of sin. Not simply content to consume you and I who commit the sin, but in wreckage, take out those around you. You know, this, in some ways, this seems incredibly unfair that David would see an innocent child die. But if you are familiar with sin in your life and other people's lives, you know that this is not unique. It is normal. The sin of other people often blows wreckage into your own life. People often die not because of their sin, but because of someone else's. And you may not literally end up by your sin killing someone. That's pretty extreme. But it's very common to see relationships and people internally wrecked and ruined by things they did not do. Sin is this way. It is desperately wicked and evil in its nature. And when we participate in it, and we delude ourselves into thinking, I'm, you know, I know this isn't great, but you know, Jesus loves me, God will forgive me, blah, 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 it'll be fine. That is a recipe for death. And in an environment in the church where we are really good, I think, at speaking grace to one another, it can be all too easy to use the language of grace to delude each other about the nature and power of sin. Notice, David did not stop being an Israelite. 
Like he didn't deconvert. He didn't stop believing in God. He, he didn't, for a moment, step outside of even the covenant that God made with him. It is possible to be both a person of God and to be deluded and fall under the power of sin. Take heed, take note, and stay as far away as possible. Sin is ravenous and seeks your death. This is the sobering nature of sin that winds its way into the story of David. And we will see not just random people, but his own children, not just the one that dies here, but his own sons that are already alive, falling prey to very similar sins, who will be involved in the death of their brothers and sisters, who will even betray their father and his throne. Sin is pernicious. It is everywhere and is seeking to kill you. The thing that makes David unique, because this is not unique. In many ways, this is, you can read up until this point and say, oh, David is a real person. Like, I have also been somebody who having no need to want or desire anything has fine reasons to covet any number of things. David's sort of like me. What makes David unique, what, what allows David to touch mercy is the fact that when he is confronted with his sin, his similarity, similarity to Saul ends. When Saul is confronted with his sin, he sort of half steps his way towards the truth of eventually acknowledging what he didn't do. When Nathan presents David with this story, which for some reason he is totally blind to in a moment of idiocy, doesn't see that the parable is about him, when the parable is finally revealed as being about him, David's immediate response is, I have sinned against the Lord. I have, I have sinned against God. No hedging. No, but, you know, it's kind of not my fault. It's a little bit my fault, but it's, not kind of, it's kind of not my fault. Immediate ownership of sin and a running to repentance. The, the psalm that was our call to worship. It wasn't the whole thing. That was Psalm 51. That psalm is written when David is confronted with his sin by, by Nathan. It is these words that he writes about how he has sinned primarily against God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Complete ownership and repentance of, of what he's done. How often is that our response when confronted with sin? Let me just speak for myself. Not great in that department. The person who most regularly confronts me with my sin is my wife. And instead of being confronted with how I've wronged her and saying, you're right, I was wrong, and I am sorry, I have to coach myself through not blaming her in my apology. My default move is to manipulate my apology so that we can share the blame of being wrong. I really have to stop 
for quite a long time and think through in my mind, how do I actually say what needs to be said, which was, I screwed up, I sinned. And that, that's when I've accepted that I need to. Before that is the phase where I'm like, no, it's your fault. My default response is, I have not sinned, you have sinned, and bringing this up is just more sin on you. That's my default attitude. David's response here is pointing towards the way of life. I have sinned. I've sinned. It's all on me. It is, it is not my other wives' responsibility. It is not Bathsheba's fault. It is not Uriah's fault. I have sinned against God. And in that moment, David is delivered into the way of life. Nothing is restored to the way that it could have been, but it is also not turned over to what it could have been negatively. Sin is waiting for you. It is deadly. And the only antidote is wide open repentance. Bring it into the light and repent fully, owning your participation. This this story has for us, though, a pointer towards a way forward. Because there there is nothing in this story that tells you how to not end up as David. If you'll just do these three steps, you'll never find yourself in the position that David was. The assumption behind this story is this is the inescapable way of things. The only thing that you can do is try to respond appropriately. But David is not the best king of Israel. The one with whom God is planning to establish the eternal throne of David's family is Jesus. And and Jesus' story takes these dynamics and flips them on their head, forever changing the nature of it. In David's story, innocent people die because of the sin of the king. Uriah the Hittite, the Gentile, dies through no fault of his own because of the sin of the king. David's son dies because of the son of the king. Because of the sin of the king. When Jesus comes and He occupies David's throne rightly and really, He is the innocent party. He Himself is the King who has done no wrong. He has marched into battle as He should. He has obeyed God as the High King of Israel. He has not failed the test of sin. He has repelled the ravenous wolves of sin. And it is instead the the gathered Hittites in the room that are the ones who are guilty of betrayal and sin. But in this time, it is again the innocent party that must die. But in this version of the story, the king is the innocent party. And he himself will die so that the Hittites 
and the children might come in and rightly be seated in the palace of God. David's baby dies, in a sense, for him. The message there is that this death that his child receives should fall on him. And subsequent to that death, the next couple verses in the chapter tell you that there will be another son that's born. Bathsheba, same woman, will bear David another son. And they'll name him Solomon. And God will give him an additional name, Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. Judgment and blessing and redemption are not far from each other. When Jesus, the, the Son of God, dies, He makes a way that all of these other people that should otherwise rightly fall under judgment might themselves bear this name, Jedediah, beloved of God. Sin crouches at our door. It is intertangled in our DNA. We are poorer at obedience and poorer at repentance. And if there was no continuation of this story, we would yet be trapped in hopelessness before the power of sin. But the true and better king of Israel does what David could not do and supersedes David as the real and actual hero that the whole story is longing for. See, the Old Testament will not let you have a hero because it is waiting for the hero to come. And that hero is Jesus. If you are in the grips, in the power of sin, if you are seeing the wreckage flow in and out of your life again and again and again, and it doesn't matter if you would call yourself a Christian or not, if you are seeing the power of that sin and you want deliverance, the Bible will never tell you, try harder, just beat this thing. What the whole story of the Bible is doing is pointing towards this good and better King who must keep on saving you. Will always be the hero of the story of the Bible and He will always be the hero of your story. So if you are entrapped and enmeshed in sin, yes, you are called to repent of your sin. Bring it out into the light. Don't try to hide it anymore. Stop being crazy. Stop trying to think that nobody will know because even if you're fooling everybody now, you won't for very long and God sees you anyway. Pull it into the light. Repent. Kill that thing in the light. But then, Jesus is the one who will save you. Jesus is the one who gets to ride in and be the hero. It won't be you figuring out how to be a better person. It will be Jesus saving you, doing for you what you could not do yourself so that you may again be called beloved of God. This is always, always, always all about Jesus. The cross is in front of you this morning. Because the cross is always in front of you. This is the solution to all of the brokenness we feel we cannot escape. This morning, respond. 
respond to the goodness of God. Be free of sin. Let me tell you, if you think that you are better off continuing to hide your shame, you are con- you're condemning yourself to a prison that you don't have to live in. However painful you may feel that it is going to be to be exposed in the light of day. The, the, the claustrophobia and the insanity of sin is way, 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 way worse. Be free. Be delivered today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. That is true whether you would say you've never followed Jesus or you have for a long time. Grace is laid out before you this morning. Would you let Jesus do what only Jesus can do and what He's always wanted to do for you? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You this morning that as deep and dark and terrible as our sin might be, You are far greater and more glorious. That as, as much power as sin seems to have over us, Your power is greater. No matter the depths and darkness of sin, Your arm can reach even that low and bring us home. God, I pray that we will leave aside the idolatry of respectability in order to be given the gift of freedom that comes when we are called Your beloved by an act of grace and mercy. God, I thank You that Your Word will not let us have any delusions about any heroic figure apart from You. We confess, God, that we do not properly see You as the hero that You are. Jesus, lift up our head out of the darkness, out of the shame of any numbers of kinds of sin. Help us to see You great and glorious and lifted up. And let us run to You, carried along by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Thank You for loving us so faithfully, Jesus. We trust that You'll continue to do so until the day that we see You face to face. Amen.